We are grateful this morning to have as our guest preacher Dr. Mark Dever, the pastor of the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He will bring now his message from God's Word to us. It's a privilege to be with you here this morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, that passage that we heard read earlier from chapter 1. And as you're opening your Bibles, let me just thank you for the privilege of being with you this morning. It's uh, wonderful for you as a congregation to be able to be blessed with such a magnificent pulpit. But uh, how much better to be known for the ministry that comes from this pulpit. Praise God for his kindness to you as a congregation. Long before I'd ever seen a picture of your meeting house, I had read writings by your senior minister and knew of him and appreciated it. So I'm thankful to be able to have this Lord's Day with you. Well, we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. We've had read for us verses 3 to 9. Let me remind you of the situation that Peter was writing about. There were young Christians in what's today Turkey. Uh, These young Christians apparently were encountering sufferings for their being Christians. We don't know of any being killed, but it seems when you read through the letter that they were encountering opposition from friends, from family, from people at work for being Christians. And this was confusing them. They were thinking, if we are finally following the right way, then shouldn't things be going better? Isn't that common sense? Isn't that what all of the popular preachers tell us? That when we find the right way, what that means is things in your life begin going well. And so these young Christians were confused. And Peter writes to them. He puts their identity squarely in God. He says that as Christians, we know who we are because of what God has done and because of what God will do. And especially what I want us to notice this morning is because of what God is doing, even when we are in the middle of distresses and trials. Pray that God will use these verses to remind us this morning about who we are in him as we meditate together. In our passage, Peter says we Christians know who we are because of what God has done. You look there in verse 3. And he refers there to the the basis of our identity, of what God has done. Many of us identify ourselves by our past, by who our family is, by where we're from or where we went to school. That's how Terry introduced me to you just a few moments ago. By something that's been done to us or that we've done. We all know about identifying ourselves according to our past. It's unavoidable. But the interesting thing about this passage is Peter says here that We as Christians, if you will, have a new past. God has replaced our old past. The basis of our identity is not then our fleshly family. No, he says here in verse 3, God has given us new birth into a living hope. That is, as the New American Standard renders it so well here, he has caused us to be born again. So for every one of us who is here this morning who is a Christian... God has established, he has re-established who we are by giving us a new birth, a new past, which gives us a new future hope as well. More on that perhaps in a moment. But you see, God who is holy and perfect, who made this world and made us in his image, is the one against whom we have all sinned. We have all rebelled. We have all rejected his role in our lives 
as our loving Heavenly Father. Now, God would have been entirely just to have allowed that rejection to stand and to entomb all of humanity forever in lostness under his just punishment. But in his amazing mercy, and this is the good news, and if you're here visiting with a relative and you don't normally go to church or you've just turned up on Sunday morning while you're touring in Savannah, let me just tell you this is what all Christian churches are really about. It's the good news that knowing that we have sinned and separated ourselves from God and called down a good God's punishment just because he is good and we are not, knowing all of that God in his incredible love and mercy came and was incarnate. He took on flesh. He became a man. And so Jesus of Nazareth, we understand to be fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life, dying on the cross as a substitute for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and trust in him. And God raised him from the dead, saying that punishment was exhausted. It was enough for all of his own. And he vindicated his ministry and his claims as Christ then ascended into heaven and reigns. And that's the good news that we as Christians have, that there is victory, that God has, has released us if we trust in him from our past. So this birth that we read of here is not because of anything these people had done, but what does it say there in verse 3? Well, it's according to his great mercy. This gift of new life was merciful. It wasn't from anything good in them. Rather, it came, he says here, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our new birth as Christians, says Peter, has come about through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why we gather on Sunday mornings. It's the first day of the week. It's when Christ was raised from the dead. And so we, as it were, tithe the very first fruits of our time in the week as a reminder to us, as the promissory that God has given us, that when this life comes to an end, Life has not come to an end. We know that the final resurrection has already begun. The first fruits of it have been raised in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is how Peter begins his letter here. He doesn't say that in Christ God made our new life possible. Rather, he is telling these young Christians that God has made it certain. Peter puts his arm around them and casts their view backwards to their own experience of the new birth and beyond that to the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself through which their new birth has come to them. And also in this passage, Peter puts his arm around them and just as he's looked backwards, he turns them forwards and casts their view ahead to the future to what God will do in them. But we're not going to take time to think more about that this morning. What I want you to notice is particularly... What Peter does, which may seem very, very strange and counterintuitive for us when he's dealing with a group of people who are struggling. And my guess is, even in a finely appointed Savannah congregation on a Sunday morning, there are people here who are struggling. Look at what Peter does. He also tells them to look at what God is doing in them now, in the present. And this is what I want us to particularly notice this morning. Now, we naturally take much of our identity from our current circumstances. Who is she, we ask, of the new person at the office? And they say, oh, she's uh, so-and-so. And we list various of her current circumstances. She's part of so-and-so's team. She's married. She has three kids. Well, so Peter, with these Christians, he doesn't define them merely in terms 
of the past and the future, as important as those are. He doesn't ignore the present because it's too painful. Now, Peter looks them square in the eyes, as it were, through this letter. And he reminds them of exactly what God is doing now in the midst of their distresses. Now, he says, this living hope, you see in verse 3, is something which Peter reminds them that they possess now. That word living implies their experience of this hope is not static, but is growing. It's growing perhaps in the sense of becoming increasingly distant from the beginning. It's growing in that sense of, of aging and maturing. They've had it longer, and that's a, a fine way to grow. All of us experience it. But this hope is also growing, I think, in the sense of becoming more and more near to its goal. And what a wonderful thought that is for us as Christians. This living hope, this growing hope. They presently possess this living hope to obtain an inheritance, which Peter says. Which even now, he says in verse 4, is being kept. So God put this inheritance there and he is continuing to keep it there. That is part of God's continuing action. They're beginning to enjoy some of it even now. Proleptic anticipations of the full riches to come. And then Peter gets a little pushier. What he tells you in some homiletics classes you shouldn't do. He switches to the second person. And he starts talking about you. Sort of verbal pointing. He says you there. Did you notice that in verse 4? As he comforts and encourages them more directly and personally, he says, it is kept in heaven for you. And he reminds them that if God has done and will do and is doing all this, then they could be rejoicing. So right now, God is active in giving them this hope, even in the midst of their sufferings. And he's also active in giving them this joy, this rejoicing in all these blessings that we see here in verse 6. In this you rejoice. The new birth now into the living hope for the inheritance which is kept is reason enough to rejoice. They can take joy in their hope of future heavenly reward. They can use this joy in their life daily. It's interesting, the word here for joy is specifically a a spiritual joy. It's the joy in salvation, like that we see in Psalm 51, where David prays, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. They are rejoicing in these things now. Insofar as they truly know salvation, they truly know this joy. This is normal for Christians. Again, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that may surprise you that Christians normally know joy during trials. But it's true. It's not that we only know joy during trials. If we only know joy during trials, we may be claiming a kind of super spiritualness that isn't very real in a fallen world. But we do genuinely know joy during trials. That joy is available for you if you will part from your sins and trust in Christ. We Christians are helped in this rejoicing because we are, as Peter says here in verse 5, protected by the power of God. Did you notice that in verse 5 when we had this read earlier? Really, if it were not God guarding us like this, what chance would we have? 
I don't just mean for Christians in officially closed countries in difficult and dangerous places in the world because, brothers and sisters, we're not fighting fundamentally against flesh and blood. The most dangerous opponents to Christianity in the world today are not those with bombs and bullets. They're the demonic spiritual forces that show themselves in everything from false religions to shopping malls. We, though, are protected by the power of God. God is right now, currently, protecting his own children by his power. And the same God who is guarding our inheritance is guarding us. After all, what good would it be for him to guard our inheritance if he didn't guard us? We wouldn't be there to claim it eventually. No, this same God is guarding both us and that inheritance, both that which is inherited and those inheriting, the treasure house and the travelers to it, we see here in First Peter, are protected by God. If we are Christians, he is even now shielding us and so securing us in the present for the future that he has in store for us. Now, how does God shield us? Well, what does he say here? By God's power. Yes, and how specifically is that power exercised in us? Well, he says here, through our faith. You see that in verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith. Now, that's strange. I think when we first read that, we might not immediately get that. Though it is our faith that is, we are believing and trusting Peter says here that this is the way that God shields us. How how does that square? How does that make sense? God is active in and through our faith. He somehow accomplishes his purpose through our faith. After all, God's given it to us. God's given us new eyes. He set upon his kingdom, new hearts. After all... He's given it to us in the first place. He's given us this faith. We Christians even now see another reality, and it's the very perception of that reality that's part of what defines us. It's part of what makes our non-Christian friends and family not fully understand us. Because we want to invest our affections, our time, our money, in things that they don't fully appreciate why we would care about as we do. But it's not mere tradition. It's not mere philosophy. It's because of God's own work in causing us to see a reality that we did not see before. But notice what else Peter says here about these Christians in verse 6. He says they were suffering grief in all kinds of trials. Peter's pretty straightforward about this, even writing to this group that's currently suffering. We know that we will and do suffer trials. We know that, but we don't like it. And we're often like the person Don Whitney has described, who happily and regularly called himself a humble servant around the church. I'm just a humble servant until he began to be treated like one. We think that we know that we'll have trials, that that will make it okay, but it doesn't. It doesn't always make them feel okay anyway. I know that sometimes Christians think that they are to be immune from suffering. But they generally don't think that for too long. What Christians here this morning could honestly give testimony to the Christian life 
being free from trials. Brothers and sisters, we know that following Christ means encountering trials. As one person said, I know the Lord won't send me more trouble than I have the strength to bear, but I do wish he didn't have quite such a good opinion of me. Well, of course, these trials, Peter knew, would destroy some of the apparently faithful. If I would follow Christ, I must endure trials. I must simply resolve to listen, to learn. And if I do the best I can at that, even if I feel misunderstood by people, I simply must continue to follow the Lord and trust the good that he's bringing about through trials. Like everyone else, to a certain degree, Christians are defined by our troubles, our struggles, even as muscle groups are defined by having them work or our our minds by having them stretched or our patience by having it tried. So we as people are in many ways shaped by our troubles. And that is what First Peter is about. And this, of course, is why these people needed to be protected by God's power because of the trials that they were suffering. Okay, that's why they needed to be shielded, because they suffered. But why did they need to suffer in the first place? Well, what Peter says here in verse 7 is for the proof of your faith. We may not always be certain of the particular purposes of particular trials, but we may always be certain of the good purpose of God in all of our trials. These trials may be longer than we would like. I mean, what trials aren't? But unlike what the advertisers say about those diamonds, these trials are not forever. They will end, and they will end with the good purpose and result, with our faith having been proved genuine by the withstanding, the enduring, the persevering through our trials. These trials are not going to burn up anything good. They will only burn up the bad stuff. So if you're a Christian, you can know that you will outlast your trials. Praise God for that assurance. What a wonderful hope he has given us in Christ. And Peter makes it clear that it was while God was doing this work, even better than it was painful, that they were to rejoice Sounds like James in chapter 1, you know, where he says in verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you encounter trials of many kinds. And not only that, but it is in the middle of all this that they also experience love for Christ, faith in Christ, joy in Christ. The love is amazing because they did not see him. Peter has that haunting phrase he uses there in verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. In his great book on holiness, J.C. Ryle wrote, Of all the things that will surprise us in the resurrection morning, this, I believe, will surprise us most, that we did not love Christ more before we died. And yet we Christians clearly must be marked presently by love for Christ however imperfect that love may be. Though you have not seen him, you love him, writes Peter in verse 8. And think of the man writing those words. I was meditating on this passage. You know, sometimes I'm just meditating on it. It's someplace in the Bible. 
And then every once in a while, I begin to key in again clearly. Of course, this is this is Peter writing. And we know something about Peter from the Gospels. We we know something about Peter's story, about his, his character. You think of the man himself. He had been there when the resurrected Jesus had offered himself to Thomas and had said the words, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Peter could remember those words. And he knew that they were true of these Christians he was writing to. And he had been there when the same Jesus had asked him three times, do you love me? To the point where Peter felt that Jesus couldn't really believe that Peter did. And yet now, decades later, Peter writes to these Christians, though you have not seen him, you love him. It's not necessarily that Peter knew these Christians that he was writing to so well. It's simply that he knew that if they were Christians, they did love Jesus. And that the consummation of their love for him would be their salvation, the goal of their faith. Their joy, too, is amazing as you read and meditate on this. An expressible joy in knowing Christ himself there in verses 8 and 9. Now, I wonder if this Thanksgiving, which is really what these verses are, if this seems a strange way to begin a letter to people who are suffering. But I think by beginning with a prayer of praise, Peter begins to put things in perspective for those beleaguered believers. Twice he mentions their joy in verses 6 and 8. And as you read through the whole letter, you know that that theme is really dominant. It's, it's a theme of encouragement, focusing on the positive. Only secondarily, and at a few points, does Peter deal with their specific discouragements. But it's not as though he was being naively positive, sort of like a modern purveyor of positive thinking, just ignoring the negatives with just occasional inbreakings of realism. No, both his more positive sections, like this prayer here in verses 3 to 9, and the sections where he deals specifically with their problems, both are realistic. This wasn't just a pre-incarnation of cynical media manipulation. It wasn't positive thinking first century style. This was Peter's accurately and honestly thanking God for the assurance that these Christians would get what they longed for more than anything else. The whole purpose of their lives and their new lives as Christians. What Peter calls down in verse 9, the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, again, if you're here a Christian this morning and you're enduring some distress or trial or suffering right now, I promise you, you will get what you most want. You will get the Lord Jesus Christ in his fullness. You will get an unmediated, fully restored relationship with God through him and through his love in Christ. It wouldn't have been right for Peter to have begun talking to them about Their persecutions, job discrimination, unbelieving spouses, mockery, hate they were experiencing as if these were the most important things in their lives because they weren't. Pastors know this. So often the things people come to us with, at least we know this when it's not about ourselves. When people come to us, they'll very often bring up a certain topic. And so often the real issues lie underneath there with what are they living their life for? What is this person doing in this situation? What has led them there? 
Well, so with these early Christians that Peter was writing to. Their real problem wasn't their trials. Friends, it's a fallen world. We're going to have trials if we follow Jesus. Which God did you think you're following? Our God went to the cross. He was crucified. If you want a God of jolly, fat prosperity, pick a different religion. That is not the God of the Bible, at least not in this fallen world. That's what Peter's writing very directly. But he writes very clearly that as real as all these trials were, and he calls them here these many kinds of trials that they may have had to suffer there in verse 6. The goal of their faith wasn't simply the resolution of any of these uncomfortable and painful situations. It was the salvation of their souls. And this is what they are engaged in and were with their whole lives, even right now. He could tell them that if they were Christians, they were presently in the process of obtaining the outcome of your faith, as he calls it, the salvation of your souls. Now, because of this, they would go a different way than many of their compatriots. So yesterday I was in Charleston and uh, I was doing a wedding at the Citadel Chapel. And uh, after the wedding, I needed to come here. So I took U.S. 17, but I didn't take it north to go back home up to the district as other people from our congregation who were down there did. I got on the same road but took it south. Now, why did I take it a different direction? Because I had a different goal, a different destination in mind. I was going to Savannah, not D.C. Well, friend, that's not surprising to me. When I'm 10 miles down the road, I'm not wondering, wow, why isn't everybody else on this road going the same direction? Well, because I know they're going to a different destination. So, friends, for you with your non-Christian family and friends, why are you so surprised that they react so differently when they have a different goal in life to the goal that you have? Of course they'll go a different direction. Now, we can pray that God in His great grace and mercy will break in and change their direction, just like He changed yours. But the surprise for us The point isn't the points along the way. It's the different destination they have. So Peter begins to comfort these early Christians by teaching this, by reminding this, by putting these things in perspective. This is what Peter is doing when he talks to them about their new birth. It was a new birth to something, you remember? In verse 3, he says, to a living hope, an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you. This is the salvation of their souls. And in our increasingly reductionistic and materialistic age, people may find this too simple or even silly. But we Christians think this is what it's all about. That God is glorified by creatures like you and me made specially in his image being saved from our sins. God is brought glory by the salvation of our souls. This is the end we live for even today, this very day, Sunday, August the 6th. That's why we're living, if we're Christians. Because we Christians are not so childish as to only hold in our minds what we see at the moment. Christians realize that this world is too small to contain the hopes and dreams of creatures made in the image of God himself. So now God has given these Christians a new birth into a living hope. Therefore, they should rejoice, remembering that as much as they suffer, they are also shielded. They are marked by loving Christ, 
trusting him, rejoicing in him. And if all that's true, then you can see how they are people who are receiving their salvation. This is who you are, Christian, says Peter. Well, this is who we are as Christians. We need to know what God has done in the past. It makes a difference. This new birth that he's given us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a high privilege. We need to know what God will do in the future. It makes us different. This living hope we have of inheritance, salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, faith proved, Christ present to us. That's the hope that keeps us going. But we also need to know what God is doing in the present. And if you've been tuning out, come back in just for a moment. I'm about done. This is my summary point. All right? Just summarizing it right now. You, especially OU faithful churchgoer, you need to know what God is doing right now. Not what he did in 1973 when you prayed that prayer. Not what you know he will do someday for you in heaven. Those are both very important. But I want to bring to your mind this Lord's Day what God is doing right now in your salvation. It makes a difference. A living hope of that which currently is kept and being kept for us by God through His power protecting you and me right now through problems and suffering. Loving, trusting, rejoicing in Christ, receiving the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls, even through trials is a privilege. And with our non-Christian friends, whether you're here today or others that we have, we want to be honest about the trials, but we want to make it clear that being a Christian, it's all worth it. Whatever trials God and His loving, fatherly care may send our way for the privilege of being forgiven of our sins and the assurance of a restored relationship with Him, it is forever completely worth it. Sometimes people feel that the continuousness of this salvation can make it somehow uncertain. But I think as we read and reflect on this chapter, we see that God's action and the continuousness, the presentness of it here in chapter 1 doesn't do that at all. It doesn't bring about uncertainty because we're doing it. Rather, it brings about certainty because God is doing it. God is the one actively involved in saving us. He is the one who is making us even today to be his people. And so the security for the Christian is finally not in ourselves, but it is in him and His electing, atoning, sanctifying love for us that is lovingly, tenderly pursuing us even today to the very end of our lives. So Peter begins writing to these suffering Christians, not by telling them what to do, which is interesting because they're in trials. You could send off a memo. That's how we do it in D.C. anyway. Do this, this, and this. Thank you. Next. No, he writes stepping way back and defining who they are, helping them to reconsider who they are, their identity. And for all their trials, the much bigger thing is that they are being saved. This is our identity. You know, nothing you do will ever save yourself. Nothing good, nothing upstanding. The only way to be saved, as well as Jesus said, You must be born again. And when you are, it begins to put everything in perspective. Let's pray together. Lord God, we confess that we have 
made trials. And to our shame, Lord, we say even sometimes quite small trials seem as if they're bigger and greater than you. Your love and provident care for us in Christ have been eclipsed by the smallest of inconveniences. Oh, God, forgive us and change us. Lord, we pray that you would stoke in our hearts a growing love for you. Even though we have not seen you, we want to be among those whom the Lord Jesus said are blessed because we love you. May that be the case with each one here this morning, we pray, for our good and your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.